if you were visiting last week, it could be that you just came back to see what we really look like, right? Because we were all in costume last week. That's really the pull of coming in costume is I wonder what they really look like without that wig on. So this is it right here. Good, bad, or indifferent, right? Hey, we're excited about this series that, uh, that we're in, In the Crowd. Uh, Steve already alluded to it as he was doing the, the worship wrap-up. And I, I just want to encourage you. I'm just going to encourage you every week that I, it can be a difficult moment to become conspicuous, especially if you've lived your whole life hidden in a crowd. And there's going to be a couple of opportunities tonight, one towards the beginning of the message and one towards the end where you're going to have an opportunity to respond. And my encouragement to you, if you feel God tugging on your heart in any way, that you're going to step in to that moment. I also want to encourage you that if you have stepped into one of those moments in this series and there's been an impact in your life, then I'm going to ask you to send us an email. You can email me at fred at citylifeva.com or Vanessa, we're all our first name at citylifeva.com. We won't share your story without your permission with your name in it. And so this is an important part. This is part of the, the vision that I had for this series coming in. And so now that we're into it a little bit and we're going to be into it for a few more weeks, that I just want to press you in that because as we launched the series, remember we talked about the names of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and how there was a prophetic significance to their names. We're in the crowd series, Lessons from Daniel, part three tonight. But Daniel means God is my judge. And so we talked about if you're going to step into these moments and experience Christ in the way that he wants to encounter you, you've got to have a Daniel heart. You can't have a fear of man. You have to have a Hananiah heart. Hananiah means God has shown grace. It means that you, you can't let this feeling of being undeserved stop you because it's all about grace. You're never going to deserve it. We can never earn what God wants to do in our life. We talked about having a Mishael heart. Mishael means who is what God is, meaning that there is a work that only Christ can do in your life. You still got to do the other things. You still got to build relationships. If you're on a counseling journey, if you're seeing a doctor, we're not saying stop doing those things. What we're saying is let's add to it. Let's add to it an encounter with Christ. And the last one is why I'm talking about this. It's Azariah, which means God has helped. If you have a Daniel heart, a Hananiah heart, and a Mishael heart, you're going to end up with an Azariah story. It means that you have a story that you're supposed to share with others to inspire them to find the courage to reach out for the work that Christ wants to do in them. So I'm going to encourage you to share your story with us and let us, in ways that protect your dignity and protect your anonymity, share it with the church. So Father, as we dive into your word tonight, as we step into this moment of kind of walking together towards moments of response, I pray that people would have, even right now, an incredible sense of liberty. They would have a sense of freedom. That they would shed the inhibitions that for some of them, for decades, have kept them hidden in the crowd. And tonight, like the woman with the issue of blood that was the story that launched this whole series, we pray that we would reach for the hem of your garment. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, amen. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, I want to read verses 29, 29 to 34, and then I want to talk about this story a little bit. Each week, we're kind of picking a story that kind of illustrates courage, people who had the courage to step out into a place of being conspicuous, shedding a fear of man, 
and then having a dramatic encounter with Christ. And then we kind of transition from there into a text that kind of sets us up for the way that we feel like God wants to minister to us tonight. So beginning in verse 29, it says, As Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. Two blind men were sitting beside the road, and when they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Be quiet, the crowd yelled at them. But they only shouted louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when Jesus heard them, he stopped and he called, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see, and Jesus felt sorry for them, touched their eyes, and instantly they could see. And then they followed him. It's interesting here. I, I want to talk about the reliability of Scripture just for a moment. And then I'm going to jump back into the prophetic imagery I believe that we find in this story, which is going to set up our first moment of response. It, it, this is one of those stories in the Bible that if, if, if you're reading the other Gospels, it can be a little bit perplexing. Because here in Matthew, he talks about Jesus leaving Jericho. And it talks about him ministering to two blind men. But we, when you read the same account in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, you, you find some different details. Mark and Luke only speak of one blind man. Mark actually gives us the name of one of them. His name was Bartimaeus. And Luke, it's interesting, talks about Jesus doing this as he was entering in the city and not leaving. I want to just talk about this for a little bit because this is part of what we believe the pulpit is for in the church, is to be a biblically literate church. And, and, and so we're going to pause in moments like this because there will be people that come to these stories and when they find them, they're going to use it as an example for why the Bible can't be trusted because they represent it as a contradiction. And can I just tell you, if you're looking for contradiction in the Bible, you're going to find it. But if you're looking for truth, if you're looking for truth, and you keep digging, I'm telling you, you will always be able to reconcile the text. It's important here that we understand that in Jesus' day, there were two Jerichos. There wasn't just one. There was the ancient city of Jericho. We're going to talk about that, which wasn't the original because that was rebuilt and that was a problem. But then Herod comes along and he builds a house outside of the city. But because of who Herod is and because of his influence, because he's right the king of the Jews, there was actually a city that began to grow up around his palace, one of his palaces. So there were actually two towns, one that was the old and one that was the new. This happens in cities all the time, right? Places and parts of even our city that used to be thriving, and now right there's urban sprawl. The same, it's been happening for centuries. So... Luke is writing to a primarily Hellenistic audience, Greeks and Romans. And then Matthew and Mark, they're writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. He passes through, if you follow his route, the ancient city of Jericho. And then he's on his way into the new city of Jericho. And so that's why Matthew and Mark talk about him leaving because he's leaving the ancient city, which is the one the Jews affiliated with, but he's entering the other. There's always a way to reconcile the text if you dig a little deeper. I love how some of these gospels focus in on only one individual. You can't raise your hand and complain about the Bible not being reliable there. If someone were to write a story about what's going to happen in this room tonight and they, were focused, they would focus in on one of you, let's Use Jamal's name, because I know he's courageous. 
And he sits in the front row, so that's part of the risk. If he were to stand tonight at some point and, 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 and someone were to do a post on Facebook about how Jamal stood and, and God ministered to him in a deeply personal way, you wouldn't read that post and say, that person is a liar because I saw five people stand. Right? You would say, no, 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 that person's focusing in on one of the stories of one of the people who ministered to in that moment. You're going to find this all throughout the Bible where one gospel talks about two or ten and another talks about one or four it's because the Holy Spirit is using people to write the Word of God. And this is part of the miracle of the Bible. It's divinely inspired, but the Holy Spirit picks certain people and inspires them to focus on certain parts of the story. It's one of the reasons why the Bible is so beautiful, because it's not just a carbon copy of one verse to the next. It's real people with real experiences Inspired by the Holy Spirit, sharing their lives with us and Azariah's story. These two men, one of them we know to be Bartimaeus that was sitting outside the city. It's like what we see in our city today. They were sign holders. As you're riding around this city, you see people holding a sign who have fallen on hard times and are looking for the generosity of others to help them. It's the same in Jesus' day. Beggars set outside the city gates. And these two men that were blind would have been surrounded by crowds of people who were begging. And it's interesting, it seems, that the implication of the text that only two found the courage to cry out for help. Because sometimes whether you're desperate or whether you're on top of the world, you stay hidden in the crowd because there's something in our humanity that doesn't want to be conspicuous. And it robs us time and time again from the healing that Christ can bring. But I love the backdrop of these two men being Jericho because it says something deep to us. In Joshua 6, 26, it says, at that time, Joshua invoked this curse. So if you're familiar with the story, Jericho was the city that was the entryway into the promised land as the Israelites were about ready to enter and to begin to take possession of it. They had to conquer that city first. And so they marched around it, right, time and time again until the walls fell and then they rushed in for victory. So the city was in ruins when they left it. At that time, Joshua invoked a curse. Listen to what Joshua says. May the curse of the Lord fall on anyone who tries to rebuild the town of Jericho. Listen to what it says. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up the gates. Now oftentimes what the Bible translates as a curse is actually a prophecy of what's to come. 1 Kings 16.34, decades later. It was during his reign that Hael, a man from Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. This city was not supposed to be rebuilt. It was supposed to stand in ruin for all of time to be a memorial, a monument of the supernatural move of God to enable this upstart nation to take possession of a promised land. He rebuilds Jericho. Listen to what it says. This is history right here, people. When he laid its foundation, it cost him the life of his oldest son, Abiram. And when he completed it and set up its gates, it cost him the life of his youngest son, Sagab. 
This all happened according to the message of the Lord concerning Jericho, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. It is a powerful prophetic picture that these two men calling out to Jesus for mercy, the backdrop is one of the abominations in Jesus' day. It is a city that was not supposed to be rebuilt. This is a powerful picture for us because of this. He cares about our need before he talks to us about our mistakes. He cares about our need before he talks to us about our mistakes. It would have been easy for Jesus to say, I'm not going to do ministry here because you weren't even supposed to build this city. I don't even know why I came here. If we're not careful, when there are moments where we have an opportunity to experience Christ, and like blind Bartimaeus, the backdrop of our life, the backdrop of our life is a journey that we know that God has asked us not to go on, but yet we did it anyways. We find ourselves feeling as though Jesus will keep walking by. And it's in these moments that you have to find the courage like Bartimaeus and his friend found in that day to call out for Jesus even when everybody else is saying, sit down and be quiet. You cannot let the backdrop of your life, which is one of disobedience, can we, can we all just agree? The backdrop of all of our lives is a story of disobedience. Jesus ministered to us, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace. Listen to what it says. How did he move? It says, the Lord, they said, we want to see. What is it? Jesus felt sorry for them and touched their eyes. So I believe that some of you here tonight, the thing that you need Jesus to minister to you on is your own journey and your own struggle with shame that you continue to withdraw from Christ because the backdrop of your life is one that you know has not been pleasing to God. Now, I know it takes courage to stand and respond to something like that because you're making an admission. But can I just tell you, when you begin to walk in a place of authenticity, of confession, there is a liberty that you find that begins to break down the barriers that stand between you and the work that Christ wants to do in your heart. So this is going to be our first participation moment. That if you're here tonight and you would say, I wrestled with this, you might be here and say, Fred, I thought we did this one a couple of weeks ago. My answer to you is yes, because people don't come to church every week. I know that is a surprise to you. <laughs> or maybe you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about shame and you thought, I'm glad that one's done in the series. And here we are again. He chases us down. We're not going to linger in this moment long because I want to get on to the next response. But if you're here and you would be willing to say, Fred, this is part of my journey. I struggle with shame. I struggle with feelings of being unworthy and I know it stops me from reaching out to Christ in moments like this. I'm going to invite you to stand and I'm going to pray. Again, we're not going to linger in this long, but this is you. I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are. Father, I pray for people that are standing tonight. If somebody's standing next to you, come on, gather around them, put a hand on their shoulder. I pray for the people that are standing right now, God, in Jesus' name. I pray, Father, that just as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down hundreds of years ago, that they're going to come tumbling down around them tonight. 
that the backdrop of their life, Father, that it's just going to crumble. The memory of their disobedience is just going to fade away. And that rubble and ruin is going to be a monument to them that they're not going to let who they used to be define them for who they're going to be. That they're going to move forward in a life that's always willing to shout and cry out for you and to follow you. Father, I love in this story that blind Bartimaeus and his friend, after you touch them, they followed. I pray that people are going to follow you tonight out of whatever disobedience that is the backdrop of their life. Father, I pray that never again would shame. I pray that never again would the feelings of unworthiness that are not from you would never be the whisper in their ear. That the only whisper that's going to be in their ear, the dominant voice of their life is going to be the Holy Spirit celebrating who they are, championing them, cheering them on. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Come on, how about we applaud for some courage? It takes courage. It takes courage. Somebody say, are you neglecting your gift? We're just getting warmed up. How many of you had chores when you were growing up? Anybody have chores? What was your favorite chore? Hey, come on, laundry? Yeah, that's all right. You can have a favorite chore. Somebody else. What was your... Mowing the lawn. Yes, favorite chore. Feeding the dog. Somebody else, favorite chore? Vacuuming. You learn about people here. Come on. Dishes, doing the dishes. Favorite chore. Anybody here? You either didn't have chores or there were no favorites, right? There were just no favorites. No favorites. To... What's that? Sweeping. Sweeping. Sweep. Dusting, yeah. Somebody else. Anybody else? A favorite chore? Favorite chore? Splitting wood. Do, do you notice the age of all the people who have a favorite chore, right? It's all the people who are now are assigning chores in this season of life. There's no hands up over here, people. No hands up over here. Stan. Preparing supper. Somebody else. Favorite chore? Setting the table. Say that again. Yeah, watering your orchard. Somebody else? Anybody? Favorite chore? Daniel? Bathing the dog. Bathing the dog. You're a bold man. Anybody? Ace, you have a favorite chore? Dishes. No. Dishes, yeah. Dishes. My favorite chore, when I was probably mid-elementary school, we, we grew up in the country. We had a burn barrel out on the back of our property, a big 50-gallon drum where we burned our trash. I know, right? When you were a middle school boy... And your father puts into your hand matches, lighter fluid, and something that burns, you are the king of the world. Right? I, right, that was one. I had chores that I didn't like, but my favorite chore was when I got to burn the trash, making a fire. Now, let me ask you this. All of you who had chores, which I'm assuming most of you did growing up, if you chose not to do the chores that you didn't like, I know you feel it right now, right? <laughs> Jamal's like, I got to stand up. I'm getting sore already. Just thinking about that spanking. No, like, listen, if you chose not to do the chores that you didn't like and you refused to do it time and time again to the point where it began to characterize your life, Who's the one who ultimately loses in that scenario? You or your family? 
Who's the loser? I think we all know the answer to that question. It's not the family. It's the person who says no because of what that speaks to the condition of their heart. See, there is a loss of service to the family, but the bigger price that is paid is the one in character for the heart of the person that refuses to serve in the way that they should. Are you neglecting your gift? Daniel 1, 17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is our third week. It's kind of been intermittent, but there's been two other weeks in this series where we've been digging around in these first few chapters of Daniel. And listen to what it says. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. Let me read the verse again. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special, right? So he gave four of them an ability, and then one of them was set apart, and they got a little bit extra. The special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. 1 Corinthians 12 is a powerful text in the Bible that talks about the gifts that God gives to us that manifest themselves because of who the Spirit is inside of us. But 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is an important verse because it says in that verse the phrase, each of us, meaning that God has a special ability for every person. Every person has something that God is going to deposit or has deposited already in you that you're supposed to in turn use to begin to serve the body of Christ and the family of God. Listen to me. Just because he gives someone else more doesn't mean he gave you less. Come on. Shadrach, Meshach, I'm getting some snaps over there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't say, they didn't give us anything special. Because they understood that just because Daniel got more doesn't mean that they got less. They understood that the sovereignty of God ultimately determines the gift that we get to serve the destiny and the purpose that we're supposed to fulfill. We don't get less. We get exactly what we need. Our gifts are relative not just to our purpose now, but to our purpose in eternity. Heaven that is to come is not a place of perpetual retirement. It's going to be a place of activity. It's going to be a place of purpose. It's going to be a place of of creative power, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, is an amazing book. If you've just grown up your whole life thinking that heaven is just this place of perpetual rest, you're going to be in for a surprise. You spend a little bit of time in the book of Revelation. There's some stuff going on up there. And you and I are going to have a part to play in it. And part of this life is the training ground. He's making us ready for what's to come. 
Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth that God's going to create. We're all supposed to be a part of it. We're going to talk more about what that means in the series that we're going to be doing in December on the Holy Spirit. Your gifts are relative to your purpose now and relative to your purpose then. Why do people neglect their gifts? Let me tell you some of the things that I've observed in people, but also in my own life. One of the reasons why we neglect our gift is because of comparing, which is really just a euphemism for self-pity. I know. Better pull those toes back because I'm coming. Hope you didn't wear sandals tonight. Right? This is self-talk. My abilities, they really won't make a difference. You slip into that mindset and mentality of that God held back on you. And if he had given me what he gave them, if he had enabled me to do what that person does, can I just tell you that's a dangerous attitude to have because it is an affront to the sovereignty of God. He created you just like he wanted to. Because of the purpose that he's called you to. You can't neglect your gift because of comparing. At some point, you've got to say, God made me for who I am and for the ability that I have. And that the body of Christ is lacking when I'm not investing it. People neglect their gift because of withholding. They neglect their gift because of withholding. Withholding is is when you begin to barter your gift for the attention that you seek. It's when you begin to say, if they would pay more attention to me, I would be more involved. But we don't get involved for the attention that we seek. We get involved for the glory that it gives, whether anyone ever knows our name. Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. Are you offering your life as a ransom for the people around you? People neglect their gift because of shame. We already talked about this one a little bit, but I'm going to hit on it again. You don't put your gift to work in the church because you have this this feeling of, of they don't know what I've done. And if they find out, once they find out what I've done or maybe what I'm doing, they're not going to love me anymore. What I would say to you is that might happen in some places, but it's not going to happen here. Doesn't mean there's not accountability. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be a hard conversations at times. But we believe in something, and you hear me say it all the time, that participation brings transformation. There are people in churches all across America and throughout the world that are missing out on the transformative experience with Christ that's supposed to come because the participation the church won't allow because of who they are. And what I would say is they're not going to change until you let them be a part. Are there exceptions to that? Sure. Leadership, working with kids, but there are a whole lot of other things that you can do in the church where the church is safe and so are you. If you're struggling with shame, that should be the first indication to you that you got to go deeper, be more vulnerable. Busyness. Let's talk about that one. People neglect their gift because of busyness. I just don't have time. 
I'm just going to tell you, if you don't have time to serve the church that you call home, then your life is out of order. I'll say it again with finances. If you're not able to walk in a place of financial stewardship that's marching towards the biblical principle of tithing, then your financial life is out of order. If you look at your schedule and you're saying it's, it's just everything that I can do to get here, that's got to be enough. I would say at some point that's got to change. At some point, you've got to serve people the way that you're being served. Busyness is a reason why people neglect their gift. Selfishness is a reason why people neglect their gift. Selfishness is different from busyness because selfishness is you have the time, but you choose to just not give it. You choose to just not give it. I remember it was a year or so ago, a family that was, had started visiting and they had children that were using the nursery and, and one of our requirements is if you use it, you got to serve in it, right? Just once a month, that's all we ask, 12 times a year. And I remember we broached that conversation with that family and, and their answer was, well, this is time for us together, it's a husband and wife, so we're not interested in serving, and then in a nice way, we said, well, we're not interested in you visiting, right? In a nice way, but that's really what we said. Because what we said is, well, have you ever stopped to think about how the reason why you're able to be in there and have time is because other people are serving you. And the culture of our church is that we serve each other. That, I mean, that's what we said. Because we're nice. On the outside. I don't get frustrated with people like that. My heart breaks for people like that. Because at the end of the day, it's the kid who won't do the chores. The family will figure it out. It's the heart of the person that's at risk. And they don't come. And we didn't have to tell them that they couldn't come, obviously, because they understood the culture of this church, which we're unapologetic about. Not because we have jobs to fill, but because of lives that we want to see changed. And what we believe about discipleship and what we believe about the pathways and how they produce virtues. We take seriously the responsibility that we've been given to get you ready for the conversation that one day you're going to have with God. Seasons is the other one I want to give to you. And this is important. Another reason why people neglect their gift is because of, are because of seasons. And this is where it's okay. Sometimes there are seasons where you are too busy, and that doesn't mean that defines your life. It's just the place that you find it. But the nature of seasons is that they go. They come and they go. You can't live in a season of busyness for the entire year. You can't live in a season of, I've been hurt and I'm trying to get better for a year. I'm saying without serving. You tracking with me? Because at some point, it's the serving is going to begin to contribute to the healing that you need. There's people that come to the church all the time that have been wounded, that have been hurt by other churches. And we try. We don't always get it right, but we try to give them the time that they need to begin to heal. But at some point, it's our responsibility to help them understand that stepping in and getting involved is going to begin to take you into the next phase of healing in your heart. Seasons come and seasons go. It can't be the long-term reason. Daniel 2, 17 to 18. So let me give you a little back, background in the story. 
the king gets a dream. And he goes to all the people in his court who are supposed to have the abilities to interpret dreams. And he said, I had a dream, and I want you to give me the interpretation. And they said, all right, well, give me the dream. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not giving you the dream. Because then you might just tell me what I want to hear. I want you to tell me the dream that I have and then interpret it for me. Right? That's called a hostile work environment right there. (laughs) Because he said, if you can't do it, you're all going to die. Yeah, not just get fired. Off comes the head. Daniel gets word of it. And you know how Daniel gets word of it? Because they couldn't give the dream. I don't, we don't know why Daniel wasn't there that day. And the person that's coming for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to kill them, to take their life, he says, hey, whoa, 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 what's this about? And he explains it and he says, oh, you, you got you to tell the king I need some time. So they go back to the king and Daniel says, give, us, give me some time. I'm going to pray And God's going to tell me the dream, and then he's going to give me the answer. Daniel 1.17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dream. It's interesting, isn't it, the step of faith that Daniel is taking, because the text does not tell us that God gave him the special ability to know the dreams even without being told them. This is a powerful picture of Daniel having to step beyond his gift into a place of faith to serve the people around him. Listen to what he does. you got to love this. Daniel went home, told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what had happened. And he, listen to what he says. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Every gift is made more effective in community. Every gift is made more effective in community. Daniel didn't see this as his opportunity to shine, as his, as his opportunity to, to display to the world and become the hero of the story. He saw it as an opportunity to serve others, whether they deserved it or not, because a lot of the people that he was going to serve didn't even believe in God. It's interesting that he doesn't say, if we get the dream and interpret it, how about you kill the pagans, but you let thus live? He did it for the ungodly just as as much as he did it for the people of God. May that same sentiment be in the church today. God tells him the dream, gives him the interpretation of the dream. It's a powerful story of how Daniel saved the day. Why? Because he was willing to put his gift to work. He was willing to step into a place of faith that was even beyond his gift, but he understood that his gift would not be effectual without the community of people around him to step into that moment with him. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up. This is another hard one to stand for. I get it. I get it. It's not easy to step out of the crowd. It's actually easier to be in the crowd. And for some of you, that's where you've been for far too long. And part of this series isn't even about 
what you're responding to in the moment. It is to some degree, but for some of you, it's just about breaking free. It's just about finding the liberty and the freedom to respond to Christ. And God's just using something that you can relate to now because there's something that you're going to have to respond to down the road that's going to take even more courage and he's getting you ready for it. And what I'm saying is you don't want to look back onto the story of your life with the regret of moments like this where you could have reached for the hem of his garment but you chose to shrink back into the crowd around you. So I'm just, if, if anything that I've been sharing tonight resonates with you, that you're here and you know, I'm not serving in the way that I should. I'm gonna invite you to stand and I'm gonna pray. This isn't about you. There's not a sign up after, right? This is, this is just you and God doing something in your heart. Father, I pray for the people that are standing right now in Jesus' name. I pray for the people that are standing right now in Jesus' name. And I pray, Father, that whatever whisper the enemy has been speaking into their ear that's kept them from withholding their gift, I pray that you would silence that voice and that there would be a rise to the volume of the voice of the Holy Spirit in their heart and they would begin to see who you created them to be. You would begin to help them to understand the uniqueness of who they are. That you would help them to begin to identify the things that God has deposited in them, what makes them special, what makes them unique, the ability that you gave to them that they're gonna in turn put to work in the church that they call home. I pray, Father, that they would put their hand to the plow. I pray, Father, that they would not allow selfishness to win the day, that so as much as they receive, that they would give. And I pray, Father, that in this coming week, that they would have such a sense of liberty because they chose to step out of the crowd. In Jesus' precious name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Let's stand and worship together.